Chapter Twenty One of The Mentor Two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Mentor Two by Various. Chapter Two The Mentor, nineteen sixteen o two o one. Number One Hundred The Ring of the Nibelung by Henry T. Fink, Department of Fine Arts, Volume 3. Do you stand for Richard Wagner, or do you not? That question was enough to sever friendships fifty years ago. It created a riot at the Paris Opera in 1861. Wagner's art admitted of no compromise. It was either gospel or apocrypha, and it had to be accepted as one or the other. It commanded enthusiastic administration, or provoked strident resentment. Many came to rail and remained to worship. Some came in curiosity and left in dismay. For half a century Richard Wagner was the center of bitter conflict, but the people listened to him and seem to appreciate and understand. In the blackest hours, the messages of Franz Liszt, Wagner's best friend, sustained him. Be of good cheer, the people are with you. So through half a century, the music drama withstood the assaults of criticism and ridicule, and the burden of proof now rests with the opposition. The secret of Wagner's success with the people, and of his influence on dramatic art, lies in his naturalness of expression. His dramas are epic poems of primitive elemental life, and they breathe the fresh vigorous spirit of the morning of time. His music commands our interest, even before we fully understand. It makes an irresistible appeal to our feelings. His art is the art that conceals art. His music seems to us so natural. As the dramatic situation rises in intensity, so his music seems to lift us on an ever-swelling flood until we are moved to our depths, though we may not know why. We are simply conscious of having assisted at something which has swept us momentarily out of ourselves into a world of throbbing emotion, and the proportions of the drama before us are so well determined that it is hard to say which of all the various scenes has touched us most. It is as though we had walked in a great forest, where the rich variety and completeness of nature's handiwork had been so absorbing that the memory could not recall vividly the outlines of single objects. We get a certain intellectual satisfaction from following the details of Wagner's art, but the supreme enjoyment is in the effect of mass. The Music Drama Monograph Number 1 in the Mentor Reading Course Music Drama, as Mr. Fink says, is quite different from opera. In Wagner's early years, 
Opera, for the most part, was a weak, vapid thing, dramatically. The plot, foolish and flat. The music, a string of songs, duets, quartets, and choruses connected by dull recitative. The music was showy, and of a kind to display the skill of the singer rather than the composer, and prima donnas at the time in their vanity would embellish this most florid music with additional vocal flourishes. Richard Wagner composed operas before he perfected his music drama, but in several of these operas, The Flying Dutchman, Tannhäuser, and Lohengrin, he gave plain imitations of the principles which he developed later, in what he called the art work of the future. Instinctively he reached out toward his ultimate object in art, before he had fully formulated his ideas. And the composers whom he admired were those who had made music a means of true dramatic expression, Gluck, Mozart, and Weber in opera, and Schubert in song. All of them made music the expression of the composer's intentions as against the vanity of the singer. Mozart defeated the despotic methods of prima donnas in some cases by making his arias so difficult technically that the singers could not add any embellishments of their own. But while insisting on the claims of the composer, none of these great musicians thought of allowing the drama to determine the form and style of the music. That is an essential principle in the music drama. The music does not simply accompany the drama. It is itself the very expression of the drama. The Rhine music, 135 bars, opening Rheingold, is not simply an appropriate accompaniment to the flow of the river. It is the river translated into musical form. So much so that if played in a concert room, apart from the scene of the murky Rhine depths in which the Rhine maidens are circling, it would have no meaning. And while a great deal of Wagner's music lends itself readily to concert production, and is popular as such, the interest in it is a combined music and dramatic one. The music drama is not a single art. It is a manifold art, combining the arts of poetry, painting, sculpture, and music. Wagner contended that the arts strayed away and fell backward after the days of the glory of Greek drama because each art tried to develop and perfect itself separately, in its own way. Wagner asserted that the way to the true, full, perfected artwork was to reunite these arts in the music drama. This theory he set forth in many writings and finally expressed in his compositions. His music drama, therefore, gives full expression for the poet in the text of the play, for the painter in the scenic effects, for the sculpture in the statuesque groups on the stage, and for the composer in the musical expression which completes the combination. And none of these contributors 
not even the composer, dominates or controls the others, not even accompanies them. The elements of the music drama are more closely interwoven than that. The contributing arts are amalgamated in one single complete art. This is what Wagner called the artwork of the future. The Festival House at Bayreuth, monograph number two in the Mentor Reading Course. It was in 1870 that Wagner's dream of a theater of his own gave promise of full realization. In 1864, King Ludwig of Bavaria, at the age of 19, gave Wagner his patronage and backed him financially. By this means, in the year 1865 through 1870, Tristan, Meistersinger, Rheingold, and Valkyrie were performed in Munich. The king wanted the festival house there, but the court and the populace regarded this plan with jealous resentment. Moreover, Wagner preferred a more remote place, better suited to fostering a new art undertaking. So the little town of Bayreuth was chosen. Wagner obtained from the municipality a free grant of land for a festival theater and his own house. The architect, Gottfried Semper, was commissioned to prepare definite plans. Everything was settled but the money, and the estimated cost was 1,125,000 francs. Wagnerian societies were formed all over Europe and in the United States, and the interest of financial men in Germany was secured. The foundation stone of the festival theater was laid with great ceremony by Wagner himself on May 22, 1872, the 59th anniversary of his birth. The work of construction proceeded rapidly, although the subscriptions were short of the total sum required. Ludwig made up the amount lacking. Thus, after 40 years of struggle, Wagner saw his colossal project realized in 1876, when the festival theater was opened for the production of The Ring of the Nibelung. Three representations of The Ring took place during the summer of that year. Then, for six years, it was impossible to open the theater for want of money. In 1882, Parsifal was produced there. And since then, festival performances have taken place there about every two years. Wagner, however, died in 1883, so he saw only two of his own great music festivals. The theater was a model in its way, which means in Wagner's way. It was planned entirely with the thought of the performance, and not at all for the display of the audience. It contains... 1,344 seats arranged in a fan-shaped amphitheater. There are 30 rows of seats, and at the very back of the hall there are nine boxes, reserved for the royalty and for Wagner's invited guests. Above the boxes there is a large gallery containing 200 seats. The orchestra is sunk and invisible. Musicians descend on steps a long way under the stage into a kind of cave. 
which has received the name in Bayreuth of the Mystic Abyss. The space reserved for the stage is even larger than the hall. The curtain divides the building almost into two equal parts. There is no foyer for the public. The audience steps out readily from any of the rows in the auditorium directly into the outer air and can find refuge and refreshment in one of the many cafe restaurants in the vicinity. On the same floor with the royal boxes, an annex is built in 1882 which affords entertainment rooms for privileged guests. The spirit that permeates the festival theater is one of unselfish devotion. The characteristic of everyone who takes part there is a complete surrender of personal interests. Each one comes to Bayreuth with a sole purpose of contributing the utmost to the festival play. Therefore, no one, singer or members of the orchestra or chorus, instructors or conductors, scene shifters or aides, receive any salary or reward. Their travel expenses are paid, and they are lodged in Bayreuth at the expense of the administration. That is all and in return they are treated not as paid artists, but as honored guests. Das Rheingold, monograph number three in the Mentor Reading Course. In the beginning, gold, the symbol of human desire, laid in the bed of the Rhine. It was worshipped and attended by the daughters of the Rhine. Then it was stolen from them. In the end, it was restored to them, but between the beginning and the end it carried its curse through many tragic chapters. This treasure was called the Rheingold, and when wrought into a ring it gave its owner universal power. One condition only went with the Rheingold. He who owned it must renounce love forever. Three beautiful maidens of the Rhine guarded the gold, and Alberich, the ugly king of the Nibelungs, the dwarves who lived underground, tried to make love to them. They rejected him scornfully, and so the dwarf, seeing the gold in the river and knowing its power, forswore love forever and, seizing the treasure, bore it off to his underground home. Just at this time, Wotan and the other gods were building a marvelous castle. They did not have the strength to build this palace by themselves, so they had called the giants to their aid. For their pay, Wotan promised them the goddess of youth, Freya. As her loss would bring old age and decay upon the gods, he never meant to keep his promise. A habit of Wotan's, by the way. He trusted to the cunning of Loge, the fire god, to get him out of the predicament. When appealed to, however, Loge declared that after searching all heaven and earth he could find no way out of the difficulty. But he also reported that he had heard of the stealing of the Rheingold and suggested that perhaps the giants would take the ring of the Nibelung in place of Freya, if the gods could get it away from Alberich. The giants between whom and the Nibelungs a feud had existed for a long time, 
knew that if Alberich kept the ring, he would have dominion over them. So they agreed that if the gods would get them the Rhine treasure, they would give up their claim to Freya. Therefore, Wotan and Loge descended to Nibelheim. There they found Alberich gathering together a great hoard of treasure by the aid of the magic ring. Furthermore, Mima, one of his lieutenants, had made him a helmet by which he could change his shape or become invisible. Loge suggested that, to prove the power of the helmet, Alberich changed himself into a toad. The dwarf did this, and the gods promptly seized and bound him. Then they forced him to give up the helmet and the ring. Alberich had to agree, but he uttered a curse on the ring that brought death and destruction to everyone who owned it. When the giants came for their reward, they placed their tall spears upright in the ground before Freya and demanded a pile of gold high enough to conceal her. However, when all the gold was heaped together, and even the magic helmet added to the pile, there was still a chink through which the eye of the goddess could be seen. To fill this, the giants demanded the ring. Wotan did not want to part with this, but the goddess Erda appeared and warned him against the curse, so he added it to the heap. The curse immediately began its work. Fafner, one of the giants, claimed the greater part of the hoard of gold for himself. When Fasold, the other giant, resented this, he slew him. This was but the first of the many tragedies that followed the ring. A beautiful rainbow bridge now appeared, spanning the valley, and over this the gods passed, and entered their new palace of Valhall. De Valkyrie, monograph number four in the Mentor Reading Course. Wotan and the rest of the gods were in a serious dilemma. They must not get back the cursed ring, for its possession would bring ruin, and yet, if they left it with the giant Fafner, Alberich might recover it and make the gods his slaves. There was only one way out of the dilemma. The ring must go to someone whom the gods need not fear. As long as no enemy had the ring, the gods were safe enough in their new citadel. This was guarded by the Valkyr maidens, all daughters of Wotan and Erda. Their mission was to follow mortals in combat and to carry the fallen heroes on their horses to Valhall to form its guard. Having provided for present safety, Wotan looked to the future. He went to the earth, and uniting himself with a mortal woman, under the name of Valsa, meaning wolf, he founded the formidable race of the Valsungs, Siegmund und Sieglinde, on whom he had set his hopes. Sieglinde grew to maturity, was carried off, and married against her will to the rough hunter Hunding. One night, to the hut where Hunding and Sieglinde were living, came Siegmund, a fugitive, wearied with conflict and battered by the storm. He had been fighting with Hunding, and had entered the very home of his enemy. Sieglinde came in and found him lying exhausted by the hearth. She gave him a refreshing draught. Then came Hunding, to whom Siegmund told his story, thereby revealing himself as his host's foe. Hunding 
would not fight him in his own home, but challenged him to combat the next day. That night, Siegmund and Sieglinde discovered their identity and decided to fly together. At the wedding feast of Hunding and Sieglinde, the mysterious stranger, who was none other than the god Wotan himself, had thrust up to its hilt in the trunk of the tree which supported their dwelling a sword, which, he said, could only be withdrawn by the bravest of men. Siegmund proved his right to the sword by drawing it forth with ease. Then the two Valsungs fled out into the night. Wotan knew of the inevitable conflict between Hundig and Siegmund, and he summoned Brunhilde, the Valkyr, and ordered her to give Siegmund aid. But Fricka, the wife of Wotan, the ever-jealous guardian of the properties, demanded that Siegmund be killed. Against his will, Wotan yielded and commanded Brunhilde to see that Siegmund lost the combat. Wotan also told Brunhilde of the ring and of the fatal spell. The giant Fafner, in the form of a dragon, guarded this ring. It could only be won by a hero unaided by the gods. Wotan thought that he had such a hero in Siegmund, but Siegmund was not a free agent, since Wotan had been the moving spirit in all his actions. Brunhilde then appeared to Siegmund and told him of his fate, but her heart melted at the despair of the lovers, and when the fight began she protected the hero. Wotan thereupon appeared and interposed his spear, causing Siegmund to be killed. The sword, Nothung, was shivered into many pieces. Brunhilde fled with Sieglinde. For her disobedience, Wotan revoked the divinity of Brunhilde. He condemned her to wed the mortal, who should rouse her from the slumber into which he was about to cast her. The Valkyr besought him that none but the bravest hero on earth should awaken her. Wotan granted her wish, and promised that she should be guarded by magic fire. Wotan then kissed Brunhilde and cast her into slumber. He struck his staff on the rocks and summoned Loge, the fire god. In answer, flames sprang up and surrounded the sleeping Valkyr maiden. Siegfried Monograph number five in the Mentor Reading Course. In the depths of a mighty forest stood a hut, and there dwelt a brave, strong, handsome youth in company with a mean little dwarf. Every day the dwarf was busy forging a sword. The dwarf was Mima, brother of Alberich, the king of the Nibelungs, and the youth was Siegfried, the son of Siegmund and Sieglinde. After Brunhilde had been cast into slumber by Wotan, Mima took upon himself the care of Sieglinde. When she died, he brought her son up to manhood. This was not kind-heartedness on the part of Mima, but crafty wisdom. He knew that Siegfried was destined to be a mighty hero, and he hoped that the youth might slay Fafner the dragon, and recover the ring for the Nibelungs. Sieglinde had entrusted to Mima the pieces of the sword Notung, 
and although the dwarf knew that no other weapon would serve for the slaying of Fafner, he also realized that he was unequal to the task of forging the pieces together again. Therefore, he kept trying to make other swords for Siegfried to use, but the youth broke them all. One day Siegfried, angry at Mima's continued failure to make him a suitable sword, rushed out of the cabin in anger. Then a stranger, who was none other than Wotan himself, in the guise of a wanderer, appeared to Mima, and in a contest of riddles forced from Mima the confession of his failure, and then revealed to him that Notung could only be forged anew by one to whom fear was unknown. When Siegfried returned, Mima admitted his inability to forge the sword, and told the youth to try it himself. As Siegfried knew no fear, he was successful. Then Mima told Siegfried that he would lead him to the dragon Fafner. Siegfried, led by Mima, came to the dragon's cave and in a wood scene of great beauty sat listening to the song of birds, and replied to them joyously with his horn. Fafner, the dragon, was finally roused by Siegfried's horn, and came out of his cave breathing threats and fiery blasts. After a mighty battle, Siegfried slew him. Siegfried's hand was scorched by the fiery blood of the dragon, and he placed it to his lips to cool it. On tasting the blood, he was able to understand the song of a bird that told him to take possession of both the ring and the helmet, and to be on guard against Mima. Consequently, when the dwarf attempted to give him a poisoned drink, Siegfried killed him. Then the bird told Siegfried of Brunhilde, who could only be wakened from her slumber by one who knew no fear and who could penetrate the ring of magic fire. Siegfried said that he had never known what fear was, and he followed the bird to where the Valkyr maiden slumbered. In the meantime, in his perplexity, Wotan summoned Erda and sought counsel with her. Could she tell him how to stop the rolling wheel of destruction? But Erda's wisdom could avail him nothing now, and Wotan resigned himself to the downfall of the gods. Then he confronted Siegfried on his way to Brunhilde and barred his way with a spear to test his courage and strength. Without hesitation, Siegfried cut the spear in two with his sword and made his way through the flames to the summit of the mountain where he found Brunhilde sleeping on a rock under a fir tree. Siegfried gazed at the slumbering maiden in amazement. Then, removing Brunhilde's helmet, he woke her with a kiss. At first she shrank in terror from her fate. Then, recognizing Siegfried as the son of Siegmund, and as the bravest hero in the world, whose coming she had herself foretold, she confessed her love for him, and yielded in ecstasy to his embrace. Digata Damerung, monograph number six in the Mentor Reading Course. While Siegfried and Brunhilde were happy together, 
Siegfried must needs go forth to seek further adventures. He gave Brunhilde the ring as a pledge of fidelity, and she presented him with her shield and her horse, Grana. Siegfried journeyed along the Rhine to the palace of the Gibichungs, Gunther and his sister, Gutruna. Hagen, their half-brother, the son of Alberich, lived there with them. Alberich had imposed upon Hagen the task of regaining the ring. Therefore, on seeing Siegfried, he began to plot. Gutruna, at his suggestion, gave the hero a magic drink which made him love her and forget Brynhilde. So, when Gunther expressed his desire for a wife, Siegfried promised him the Valkyr, Brunhilde, claiming as reward the hand of Gutruna. In the meantime, Brunhilde, awaiting the return of Siegfried, was visited by another Valkyr, Voltrauta, who begged her to give up the fatal ring to the Rhine maidens and so save the gods from destruction. But this Brunhilde refused to do, counting Siegfried's love a greater treasure than her lost divinity. Siegfried then appeared to her in the form of Gunther, which he had assumed by means of the magic helmet. He forced the ring from her and commanded her to accept Gunther as her husband. Brunhilde was taken by her new husband to the palace of the Gibichungs. When she arrived there and saw Siegfried with Gutruna, she at once accused him of having betrayed both herself and Gunther. The crafty Hagen then promised Brunhilde and Gunther to avenge them on Siegfried. A hunting party was arranged, and during it Siegfried, who had become separated from the others, was met by the three Rhine maidens who entreated him to give back the ring. He refused, even when they told him that his refusal would mean that he should die that day. Then the others of the party came up, and during the meal Hagen gave Siegfried a magic potion under the influence of which memory returned to him, and he told the story of Mima the dragon and the forest bird. As he was in the midst of his tale, two ravens flew out of the thicket behind him, and he turned to look at them. Hagen immediately speared him in the back, the only vulnerable spot in his body. Brunhilde had made the hero invulnerable with this exception, for she knew that in battle, he would never turn his back to the enemy. Siegfried fell dying. His last words, a passionate greeting to Brunhilde, whom now he recalled with rapture as his beloved wife. His body was placed on his shield, and slowly the funeral procession marched back to the castle. At the hall, Hagen claimed the ring, and when Gunther opposed him, Hagen killed him. But when he attempted to snatch the ring from Siegfried's finger, the hand of the dead hero rose in awful warning. Brunhilde then appeared, knowing the truth at last, and proclaimed Siegfried the victim of tragic fate. A funeral pyre was raised, on which the body of Siegfried was laid. Brunhilde tenderly drew the ring from his finger and cast it into the Rhine. She threw a torch under the funeral pyre, and as the flames rose, she grasped her faithful steed Grana by the mane and charged with him into the flames. 
the waters of the Rhine then rose and flooded the castle of Gunther. Hagen was dragged beneath the waters. All was submerged, and above the general catastrophe, Valhall was consumed. The twilight of the gods had come. The old order changeth, yielding place to the new. By Henry T. Fink, music editor of the New York Evening Post, author of Life of Richard Wagner, and many other works. In the leading operatic centers, the four music dramas constituting Richard Wagner's Ring of the Nibelung are often performed separately, but once a year, sometimes twice. They are all given within a week or two, in proper order. Rheingold, Valkyrie, Siegfried, and Gotterdammerung, as a special Nibelung cycle. And such a cycle is looked on by the highest class of music lovers as a great festival, and is followed with concentrated attention in all its wonderful details. Wagner himself gave his ring, as it is often called for short, the subtitle Bühnenfestspiel, or Stage Festival Play. It was in the summer of 1876 that he first gave it to the world in a specially constructed theater in Bayreuth, Bavaria. And he did this in accordance with a plan conceived by him as a necessity more than a quarter of a century before. To understand why he regarded such a festival as a necessity, we must know something about the operatic situation at the time when he composed this colossal and revolutionary work. The originators of Italian opera who lived in Florence three centuries ago held that the play, or libretto, in an opera was as important as the music. In their eagerness to make it possible for the hearer to understand every word of the text, they banished all flowing melody in favor of a dry recitative, halfway between speech and song, one of them actually boasting of their noble contempt for melody. This naturally led to a reaction, which went so far to the side of melody that finally nobody listened except when the prima donna or the tenor sang a brilliant aria, the play being entirely ignored. Efforts to curb the singers and restore the play to honor were made by several composers, the most important of them being Gluck, 1714 to 1787. So thoroughly was he imbued with the importance of the play in an opera that he once wrote, Before I begin to work, I try to forget above all things that I am a musician. Yet in his operas too the arias remain the principal points of interest, as they do in the operas of his successors, Rossini, Bellini, Donizetti, Mozart, Weber. Moreover, and this is the most important point, in Gluck's operas, as Wagner himself pointed out in 1850, aria, recitative, and ballet, each complete in itself, stands as unconnected, side by side, as they did before him, and still do, almost always to the present day. It was this defect of the opera, this incoherence of its parts, that Wagner set himself the task of remedying, 
The result was the music drama, the artwork of the future, as exemplified in the Ring of the Nibelung, as well as in Tristan and Isolde, Die Meistersinger, and Parsifal. Different from Ordinary Operas These seven music dramas differ radically in their structure from what had been known for centuries as operas. Operas are made up of set numbers, that is, solo arias, duos, ensembles for three or four voices, besides choruses, instrumental pieces, and dances. Wagner also himself wrote some operas, The Fairies, Rienzi, The Flying Dutchman, Tannhäuser, and Lohengrin, in all of which there are set numbers which are played in song once and do not recur. Beginning with The Flying Dutchman, however, we have, besides the set numbers, which do not recur, others which do recur, and these are the far-famed motives, in German leitmotif, usually called leading motives or guiding themes. A leading motive may be defined as a characteristic melody or succession of chords, like the majestic strains of the Walhall music, the heavy, clumsy musical tread of the giants, or the virile, heroic motives of Siegfried, which is sounded by the orchestra whenever in the course of a drama the personage or the dramatic idea with which it is associated comes forward or is referred to in the text. Today, Wagner's early operas seem simple to all, but the German audiences that first heard them more than sixty years ago found them hard nuts to crack. His Rienzi, being in the flashy Meyerbeer style, much admired at the time, won great favor, although it is the poorest of his works. His next work, The Flying Dutchman, was so novel in style that the audiences did not know what to make of it. Tannhäuser was still more Wagnerian, while his Lohengrin seemed so far beyond the possibility of public approval that he could not get it accepted for performance even in Dresden, where he was conductor. This was only one illustration of the hard-set conditions of the operatic situation. Wagner had so many reasons for dissatisfaction that he joined the revolutionary uprising in 1849. This uprising was soon crushed, and Wagner, with the aid of Liszt, escaped to Switzerland, the great asylum of political fugitives, Twelve years elapsed before he was allowed to return to Germany. For six years he did not compose another opera, devoting his time instead to writing essays, in which he tried to explain the aim of his artwork of the future. Nobody paid any attention to these essays. The consequence was that, as he wrote to Liszt, I lead here entirely a dream life. If I awake, it is to suffer. He suffered because, among other things, he heard from many sources that the performances of his operas given in German cities were so bad that it was hard to understand how anyone could possibly enjoy them. A Musician's Dream If these comparatively simple operas were so badly sung and played, 
what would happen to the more advanced and ultra-Wagnerian work which now began to ripen in his brain, the four music dramas constituting the ring. Their performance, he realized, would be impossible in the opera houses of Berlin, Dresden, Leipzig, and other cities, as managed and manned at that time. He had to fall back on his dream life, and he dreamt a wonderful dream, a dream of Bayreuth, of a specially built theatre with singers and players selected by himself for their correct performance of his next work. This dream was not realized until twenty-six years later. The next work was at first intended to be a music drama complete in itself, to be called Siegfried's Death. On thinking the matter over, however, Wagner concluded that the poem was too full of matter for one play. Consequently, he wrote Young Siegfried to precede and prepare for Siegfried's Death, the name of which was changed to Gotterdammerung, or Dusk of the Gods. Then, for the same reason, he wrote Die Valkyrie, to precede Siegfried, and finally Rheingold as a prelude to the other three. While the poems were thus written in inverse order, the plot of the whole cycle had been in his mind and written down before he wrote any of the verses. And the music, of course, was composed in proper order beginning in 1853 with the Rheingold. Wagner not only wrote the poems of all his stage works, but he was a great dramatic poet. The full value of his poems, however, can be appreciated only in connection with the music. Just as the music makes its deepest appeal in connection with the poem and the action, and yet his music alone is compelling enough for Wagner concerts at which the music is played without the words are among the most popular of concerts. What we should specially bear in mind is that the music in ordinary operas is simply associated with the dramatic poem, or libretto, whereas in the ring, the two are identified, or, as Wagner once expressed it, in the music drama, the poem and the music are like two pairs of lips in a kiss, each giving to and taking from the other. To practical persons, Wagner's life in Switzerland must seem deplorable. He spent six years writing theoretical essays, the sales of which hardly paid for his paper and ink. Then he began to write and compose his cycle of four Nibelung dramas, which he felt sure would never bring him in a penny, even if he succeeded, which he doubted, in ever getting them performed. But Wagner was not a practical man. He was a genius. He could no more help creating the Ring of the Nibelung than a volcano can help erupting when the time comes. He finished Rheingold. He finished Die Valkyrie. He began Siegfried and got as far as the middle of it when he was compelled to stop because of lack of funds. The royalties from his operas, which since his death have netted his heirs over a million dollars, were at that time trifling. Liszt and his other friends helped him, but all his efforts to help himself failed. For rehearsing and conducting the London Philharmonic concerts, 
during the season of four months, he got $1,000, or half what in recent times Jean Doreske used to earn in four hours by singing one of the Wagner rolls. He finally concluded that in order to finish the ring, he must write a separate opera that might be performed at once and bring him in some money. The result was Tristan and Isoldi. But this was as far ahead of the times as the ring, and no opera house attempted it till six years after its completion in 1859. King Ludwig to the rescue. In despair, he next composed Die Meistersinger. This, being a comic opera and full of pleasing melody, would, he felt sure, turn the tide. It did so. But before this occurred, important things happened. Encouraged by the success of a series of concerts he had given in Russia, he spent his money recklessly in Vienna, and borrowed more, at usurious rates, because he had been invited for another tour in Russia. Through no fault of his own, this came to naught, and he had to fly from Vienna to escape a debtor's prison. First he went to Switzerland, then to Stuttgart. In a moment of despair he had bought a pistol to end his life, but better counsel prevailed, and he decided to hide in the Swabian Alps, there to complete the score of his comic opera. The wagon had already been ordered, and he was packing his trunk, when a card was brought up with the name of Baron Fistenmeister, court secretary of the King of Bavaria. Ludwig II had but recently ascended the throne of Bavaria. He was very young and very enthusiastic over Wagner's operas. He knew that the great composer needed help, and one of his first actions was to send his secretary to find him. He was promptly brought to Munich, where he was enabled to live in luxury at the king's expense. Not only were his operas staged at once, but also two of his music dramas, Tristan and Isoldi, and De Meistersinger. He now returned to his Siegfried, which, with tears in his eyes, he had abandoned in the middle of the second act. His plan was to complete this, and got to Damerung, then have the whole ring staged in a new theatre to be specially constructed in Munich. The king cordially approved this plan, but the courtiers and the populace, jealous of the great composer because of the influence he had on the king, made such a row over it that Wagner left the city to complete his work elsewhere. By Reut in the First Festival the inhabitants of Munich have had reason to regret their action in opposing the plans of their king and Wagner. Since Wagner's death in 1883, a score or more of festivals have been held at Bayreuth, bringing millions of profit to that Bavarian town, all of which the Munichers might have had. Bayreuth was chosen partly because it was within the realm of Wagner's royal friend, partly because of its picturesque surroundings, and partly because of its seclusion. Special inducements had been offered him to build the Nibelung Theatre at the famous summer resort Baden-Baden, but he did not wish to produce his great and revolutionary work 
before audiences of mere pleasure-seekers. He had spent a quarter of a century in creating an entirely new German artwork, free from all foreign elements and operatic fripperies, and he wanted to submit it to serious music lovers, who would be sufficiently interested to take a trip to remote Bayreuth. Edison, the wizard inventor, who never spared himself in work, said not long ago that genius was 1% inspiration and 99% perspiration. Wagner's ring is certainly a miracle of inspiration. Yet when one reads of how much hard work he bestowed on its production, after the infinite pains he had taken in creating it, one feels tempted to say that Edison did not exaggerate. Monumental proof of Wagner's indefatigable industry is afforded by two volumes, one containing his business letters, the other his letters to the artists during the preparations for the Beirut festivals of 1876 and 1882, over both of which he presided personally. He spent a whole summer visiting all the German opera houses and picking out the artists most suitable for each of the 49 solo parts in the ring. With most of these, he corresponded personally, and also went over their parts with them before the rehearsals on the stage. The orchestra was made up with the same attention to individual merit, while the scenic features were genuine works of art. The Nibelung Festival of 1876 was a most important event in the history of music. Among those who attended it were two emperors, William I of Germany and Don Pedro of Brazil, King Ludwig II, the Grand Dukes of Weimar, Baden, and Mecklenburg, together with many other representatives of the European aristocracy, while among those who represented the musical nobility were Liszt, Krieg, and Saint-Saëns. On all these is on the ordinary mortals assembled. The ring made an indelible impression. Conquest of Europe and America that there were shortcomings, it is needless to say, for everything was so new and difficult to the artists. Nor were the funds sufficient to enable Wagner to realize all his intentions. The cost of seats, $75 for the four performances, which were thrice repeated, kept many enthusiasts from attending, and the result was a deficit of $37,500. This deficit, while it was a cruel blow to Wagner, was for the world a blessing in disguise, for it made it impossible for him to carry out his plan of reserving the future performances of the Nibelung's Ring for Bayreuth alone. There were no available funds, so King Ludwig, who had contributed $50,000 toward the expenses of the Nibelung scenery, got the privilege of producing the whole ring in Munich. Other cities soon followed, and so great was the success that Wagner permitted Angelo Neumann, manager of the Leipzig Opera, to organize a traveling Wagner theater for producing the ring throughout the cities of Germany as well as in Italy and other countries.
These performances were, fortunately, given under the conductorship of Anton Seidel, who had been Wagner's secretary for several years, and concerning whom Wagner wrote, No other conductor knows as he does the proper tempi, or changes of pace, of my music, or how the action on the stage must be suited to the music. Seidel learned these things from me. He will conduct the Nibelungen better for you than anyone else. American Performances Fortunately, also, it was this same Anton Seidel who conducted the first performance of The Ring in America, beginning with Siegfried in 1887. Die Valkyrie had previously been produced under Leopold Damrosch. The success in these cases was immediate, for the Metropolitan Opera House had imported the leading Wagnerian singers from Germany. The ground had been well prepared. Theodore Thomas had labored many years to educate the public up to Wagner, his activity culminating in the great Wagner Festival of 1884, for which he imported three of the leading Bayreuth singers, Materna, Winkelmann, and Scaria. That same season, Wagner's operas and music dramas began to lead the others at the Metropolitan, and among the singers who helped to popularize his works were Lily Lehman, Marion Brent, Milka Ternina, Albert Niemann, Heinrich Volkel, Max Alvary, Theodore Reichmann, Emil Fischer, most of whom had studied with Wagner. Besides, somewhat later, Jean and Edward Duretzka, Olive Fremstadt, Johanna Gadsky, and the Americans, Lillian Nordica, Emma Eames, Louise Homer, and Geraldine Farrar. The first of the Nibelung operas heard in New York was Die Valkyrie. It was sung at the Academy of Music eight months after the festival of Bayreuth, but the performance was in every way inadequate. In a way, it was fortunate for the Wagner cause that Abbey and Grau lost $250,000 giving operas in Italian and French during the first season of 1883-84, through 84, the Metropolitan Opera House, just built at a cost of $1,732,978. That failure induced the directors to try German opera and for seven years it ruled supreme. But the German singers, great as they were in their own sphere, could not, with a few exceptions, notably Lily Lehman, do justice to Italian and French works. The eager desire to hear those again under more favorable conditions led to a temporary cessation of German opera but it so happened that one of the famous singers engaged for French and Italian opera was the great tenor Jean Doresque, who gradually became an ardent Wagnerite, eager to appear in the Nibelung operas. He induced the management to re-engage Seidel and some of the best German singers. And once more, Wagner flourished side by side with Verdi and Meyerbeer, Gounod, and Bizet. Wagner now leads in the number of performances followed by Puccini and Verdi, 
Singers of every nationality now seek to appear in the Wagner operas, and an ambition of the great conductors, including the Italian Toscanini, is to interpret the Nibelung's ring, of which Liszt wrote, It overtops and commands our whole art epoch as Mont Blanc does our mountains. End of chapter 21